All right, who's ready to do this? You ready to study the Word of God together? Everybody got your Bibles? Yeah? Some of you holding up your phones? That'll work. That's okay. I'm still old school. All right, I got to have a... I got to have a page or something, that's just me, but if it's on your phone, that works too. It's great to see you. Let's pray together, okay? Jesus, we just praise you tonight for the chance to be with the people of God, studying the Word of God, to exalt the Son of God. Be glorified tonight, I pray, Jesus. We just thank you for the cross. The Lord Jesus, we know that 2,000 years ago, you came in flesh, and you took up on the form of a servant, you humbled yourself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That God has highly exalted you and given you a name above every name. That in the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. We thank you, Lord, that we live in this generation. That we live, we're convinced, at the end of the church age as we know it. And a new dispensation is about to begin. Lord, we're living in a time of transition as they were in the early days of the book of Acts. So we're living in similar days. And so, Lord, help us, I pray, to be faithful, to shine as lights in this dark place, to be filled daily with the Spirit of God, and to walk in the power, I pray, of God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, so here we are, and we studied this morning, the very end of Revelation 13. So I actually did three messages in what I call the highlight reel of the book of Revelation. That's what we've been doing throughout the summer here when we've been in the book of Revelation, we're going to do a verse-by-verse study of Revelation starting at the end of August, all right? So uh, that, this is just kind of a little teaser. There's so much more we're going to do as we get into a verse-by-verse study. That's not going to be on Sunday morning. It's going to be at this time right here on Sunday afternoon at 4.30, uh, Sunday afternoons. We're going to start in chapter 1 and verse 1 and just work line by line all the way through to the end of chapter 22. And so what we're doing on Sunday mornings, for those that maybe haven't been here, is uh, just a highlight reel of Revelation, 11 lessons that I consider kind of the composite, the snapshot, to really get a feel for what the book of Revelation is all about, uh, and to learn, I think, the times in which we live. Revelation 13 is such a crucial chapter in Revelation. It's where we learn several things about what will happen at that time, the unholy trinity, the rise not only of the dragon, as he's called in Revelation 12, uh, but the Antichrist and the false prophet. And so uh, let me just start by answering a couple of questions that people asked on the way in, and then we're just going to open it up for Q&A, whatever you want to ask regarding this morning or anything we've talked about maybe in weeks past. Uh, For clarification or just comment, listen, this isn't just my time to do all the talking. I do that on Sunday morning. This is your time too, okay? And so um, nobody gets to monopolize the mic. Don't misunderstand. Only I get to do that. <laughs> but uh, hey, you've got things to share too. And so I just want you to feel the liberty. If God's showing you something, teaching you something, be, be willing to uh, just share maybe what God is showing. Just an observation. Uh, and that's what we're doing with a lot of revelation. We're just making observations. We can't say emphatically absolutely everything. And how it's going to happen perfectly. I can tell you personally, I'm fairly emphatic on the timeline I've published. That biblical timeline of prophetic events. Uh, We know generally this is the timeline of things that are going to happen. The next thing on God's timeline is the rapture of the church. And then you have the seven-year tribulation. And then you have the second coming, the day of the Lord. Then you have the millennial kingdom. And then finally, at the end of that thousand-year millennial kingdom, you have that eternal state. Can't wait to get there. And we're going to end 
uh, this study on Sunday mornings, the first Sunday of August. We're going to talk about the eternal state in uh, Revelation 22. And guys, I'm going to tell you right now, it's going to be out of this world. <laughs> Literally. You get what I'm saying? Pardon the pun. Literally. It's not anything what we've been taught. It's so much more than what we can imagine. Uh, you know, most of us aren't really inspired when we think about heaven because, you know, logic says after mm, 10,000 years of walking the streets of gold, the streets of gold just, mm, I've been there, done that. But I'm telling you, there's a lot more going on than just the pearly gates and the streets of gold. We're going to talk about that in Revelation 22. So somebody asked on the way in, let me just maybe explain clarification. So uh, I keep mentioning how Satan is a counterfeiter of spiritual realities. And it's in Revelation 13 that we see he counterfeits even the miracles of God. Remember the false prophet calls fire down from heaven? Who did that in Scripture? Remember the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel? Right? So Elijah, the prophet of God, he calls fire down from heaven as he's facing down the prophets of Baal. And guess what? The false prophet does that too in Revelation 13, uh, right in front of uh, the world's watching eyes. He brings fire down from heaven, counterfeits the very miracle that, that Elijah had done. Uh, remember Moses in the court of Pharaoh. Remember what happens in the court of Pharaoh? Uh, God tells Moses, throw down your staff, and it became a what? A serpent. And then guess what? Pharaoh had some magicians in his court, and uh, they did what? They mimicked exactly the same miracle. Now, it's no accident that Moses' serpent gobbled up their serpents, right? There's a little power play on the part of God here. But here's the point, guys. God can do miracles. Guess what? Satan can do. And that's why I keep saying this. If, if, you're, if, if you have to see miracles visibly to authenticate the work of God in your life, you're setting yourself up to be deceived. And that's why I keep coming back to what God has said, not simply what you see. The world's going to be deceived because they're going to go on what they see. And that's what we learn in Revelation chapter 13. It says that he will deceive them through lying signs and wonders in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It says in Revelation 13, 14, he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. Now, I'm going to talk about this in just a minute because somebody else asked this question on the way in. I'm convinced one of the signs or the miracles that he counterfeits is the resurrection. I'm going to talk more about that in just a moment if somebody's asked about it. But what about this unholy trinity? Uh, if he's a counterfeiter of spiritual realities, uh, it makes sense that he would counterfeit even the triune nature of God. So you have God the Father, yes? God the Son. God the Holy Spirit. That's what we call the Holy Trinity. The triune nature of God. By the way, in Genesis chapter 2, when God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, guess what he was talking about? He gave Adam the same triune nature that he had. That's what it means when we say that human beings are made in the image of God. Not that God necessarily has two arms, two legs, two eyes, a nose, two ears, and a mouth, all right? Uh, what it means, though, is that he's a trinity, so he made Adam a trinity. He gave man the triune nature of God. That's what it means when we say we are created in the image and likeness of God. Genesis 2 and verse 7, he uh, took Adam and made him of the dust of the ground. There's his body, good. And then what does it say? It says, and he breathed to him the breath of life. There's his 
There you go. Uh, it's his spirit, we should say. All right, he breathed in him the breath of life. There's his spirit. And then it says, man became a living soul. So he gave Adam a body, soul, and spirit, the great three in one, the image of his uh, creator. Now, because Satan, by the way, said in Isaiah 14, I will be like the most high. Guess what? Adam was like the most high. He had the image and likeness of God. He was made in express image and likeness of him who made him. Lucifer, on the other hand, wasn't like God. He was similar to God, but he wasn't like God. Guess what he's always wanted? It's to be like God. From Isaiah 14, 12, when he said, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the side to the Lord. I will be like the most high. He's always wanted to be like the most high. He's always wanted to sit on the throne of the most high. He's always wanted to be worshipped as the most high. And he's always wanted to establish a kingdom on the earth like the most high. Guess what he'll get in the tribulation for a short season? He will be like the Most High, he'll be worshipped as the Most High. He'll sit on the throne of God like the Most High. He'll be worshipped as the Most High. Second Thessalonians 2 says the son of perdition, this man of sin, will go into the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God, and he will be worshipped as God. Now here's the deal. Lucifer's not like God because he's not a trinity. He didn't have the triune nature, but he's going to counterfeit that. And in the tribulation, what do you have here? You have the dragon... And that would be maybe the antitype or the counterpart to God the Father. No one has ever seen God the Father at any time. Scripture's clear. But on the other hand, if you want to see what God the Father is like, you need to look no farther than God the Son. Colossians 1.15. He's the image of the invisible God. And so who would be the counterpart, let's say, to Christ? Antichrist? There you go. He's not going to claim to be the Christ. He's not going to claim to be the Jewish Messiah. He's not going to claim to be the Christian's Christ. But in some way, he will be embraced as a Messiah. For the same reason we embrace Jesus as the Messiah. Because he died, but not merely that he died, but because he rose from the dead. And today, he's alive. And so we embrace him as the Messiah, meaning the anointed one. That's what it means. The Christ in the Greek, Messiah in the Hebrew, means the anointed one. And so we know that Jesus is the promised one, the anointed one, God's son. Why? Because he rose from the dead. He proved his deity. He wasn't merely humanity. Now, the Antichrist, while he doesn't claim to be the Christ, he doesn't claim to be the Jewish Messiah, he will be worshipped as a Christ. He is worshipped as the Messiah for all men. I mean, here's the supernatural man. And he is going to then claim to be God, and he's going to be worshipped as God. So, in this unholy trinity, you have the dragon who's the counterpart to God the Father, you have the Antichrist, the counterpart to the true and living Christ, and then you have the false prophet, who is the counterpart to the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John chapter 15, when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, and guess what? He will not speak of himself, but he will only speak of me. In other words, the role of the Holy Spirit is not to exalt himself. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is not to bring worship to himself. The ministry and purpose of the Holy Spirit is to draw all attention to Christ, to point all worship to the Son. 
not to exalt himself, but to exalt the Son of God. You can tell, listen carefully, you want just a little bit of a way to maybe discern the work of the Spirit of God, I'll tell you where it's at. Where there is the worship of the Son of God, there is the work of the Spirit of God. Now, you go into a church, and it's all about the Spirit and not at all about the Son, right away there ought to be red flags going up. Hey, by the way, wherever the Spirit of God is at work, deceiving spirits are too. You understand that? All right, 1 Timothy 4.1. What did John say to do? Uh, what did Paul say to do with Timothy? Uh, he, he, he said there would be doctrines of demons in the last days. Uh, 1 John 4. It's where John said that there are deceiving spirits. Okay? And so wherever there's the work of the Spirit, there's also the work of deceiving spirits. And one way you know the work of the Holy Spirit is when God the Son is exalted. Because what Jesus said is the Spirit of God won't seek to exalt himself. He won't speak of himself. He'll only speak of me, see. So what you have the false prophet then is the counterpart to the Holy Spirit who's not there to get worship for himself in Revelation 13. He directs all the world's worship to the first beast, the worship of the Antichrist. So you have there the rise of the unholy trinity. Satan will counterfeit even that spiritual reality, the triune nature of God. Does that make sense? That was from Glennie Sparks on behalf of her daughter who couldn't be here tonight. So I hope that answered it, Glennie, wherever you're at before you had to leave. Glennie, is that good? All right, excellent. Now, another question tonight that uh, somebody asked on the way in comes from Dave. And uh, so he brought up this idea of cloning. Okay, now, I'm somewhat emphatic. I'm not dogmatic about this because, as I've said, the best way to interpret prophecy is once it's happened. Well, this hasn't happened. Okay? So uh, anytime something hasn't happened yet, all we can say is, uh, well, it looks like it could happen this way. I'm convinced it probably will happen this way. But I don't know for sure. Uh, so if you want to look at it again, Revelation 13, it says this. It says in verse 14, he, the false prophet, deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast whose wound or who was wounded by the sword and lived. And he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Now, what happens to the beast? Go back to, I think it's verse 4. It says this in verse 3. It says, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast, and they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? The entire world is marveling at what they see happen here. He has this deadly head wound, and it's though this deadly mortal wound is healed. You better believe they're going to marvel. I mean, think about this. In the age of satellite technology, the entire world is mourning this man's death, who's considered a hero who brought the world together in time of crisis, who brought peace in the Middle East. Up to this point, they followed him merely as a political leader who's brought the world into a global community. And all of a sudden, he's assassinated, and the world is mourning his death. And then in front of millions of watching eyes all over the world, 
he suddenly reappears, he sits up, and he's alive. You better believe they're going to marvel, huh? All right, now here's the observation I made. This is just an observation. Remember, John is using language that's limited to the first century. He's seeing things for which language has not yet been invented. He's using the words that he has at his disposal. And so all of a sudden, look at what he says in verse 14. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived and was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. John doesn't know what he's looking at here. He, he's, he's, literally, he's literally saying, look, it's him, but it's not him. I'm not sure what to call him. It's an image of him. Now, the word in the Greek is icon, from which we get the word icon. It's the same word, again, how do you do a Bible study? There's no such thing as Bible study without comparing Scripture with Scripture. See, the number one, I think, mistake people make in Bible study is they just look at one piece, one passage, one page, and they try to deduct its interpretation from there. You can't do that. You've heard me say the Bible, self-defining, it's self-interpreting. And so you take this word icon in the Greek, and you begin looking at where it's used other places in the Bible. And lo and behold, it's used in Colossians 1.15, that passage that says Jesus is the visible image icon of the invisible God, right? In other words, Jesus is the express image of God, the exact duplicate, the replicate. And in the same way that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, this icon of the beast, this image of the beast is the visible image of the invisible man who's no more because he's died. All of a sudden it appears that he's alive because it's an exact replicate, this word in the Greek, icon. Listen, for generations, you can look at commentators from years gone by, 100 years ago, even 200 years ago, commentators were, were, were befuddled. What is this image? And some would say, well... He's going to set up an idol or a statue in the Holy of Holies. And somehow he's going to be able to talk and have like a robotics or something, right? Now, in an age of virtual reality and 21st century technology, the world ain't worshiping a talking robot. You get what I'm saying? I mean, this isn't like virtual reality. Hey, people have seen all that. They're not deceived by that. Uh, they, they've been there, done that. There's something about this image that is so real, it appears to be undeniable. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 24, it's going to be so real to the naked eye that if it were possible, even the very elect could be deceived. You understand what Jesus was saying? Jesus was saying that if he was standing here tonight, you and I, the elect of God, could be deceived by what we see. That's how real it's going to be. So I'm convinced personally what you have here, if John would have had the word clone and not merely the word icon, that's exactly what he's describing here. Because check this out, we get more clues. As we look at this passage just a little bit farther, there's more clues here. Look at what it says in verse 15. And he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast. Now listen carefully. That word breath in the Greek is pneuma. It's not the word zwi. Zwi is the word for life. You see, this image has breath, but this image hasn't been given life. 
Do you understand what makes a human being a human being? Not merely having a human body, but having a human soul. What would a clone theoretically be? And we're talking theoretical here. A clone of a human being would be a living organism with a living body, but without a living soul. So John very carefully chooses not Zui as in life because this is a counterfeit resurrection. Satan can take life. He can't give life. In the same way we today have the scientific technology to clone a human body, but we don't have the technology to clone a human soul. Only God can do that. So he says this image, the false prophet has the power to give him breath. But it never says life. Now, if you're using a KJV, I know it says life, all right? That's why you got to go back sometime and study out that original word. That's why the New King James has translated it as breath, because it appears that he has life, but he's not actually given human life. He's given breath. It says he's granted the power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. What happens? Up to the midway point of the tribulation, the Antichrist, this political leader, is empowered by the dragon, but now his image is possessed by the dragon. So you literally have now, as Jesus was God incarnate, God in the flesh, you now have Satan incarnate, Satan in the flesh. At this point, he goes into the rebuilt Jewish temple, 2 Thessalonians 2, proclaims himself to be God, sits on the throne of God, is now worshipped as God. That is what Jesus referred to as the abomination of desolation in Matthew chapter 24. And as Antioch, as Epiphanes did, in 164 B.C., desecrated the temple by sacrificing a swine on the altar of the Holy of Holies, prophetically foreshadowing another abomination of desolation. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 24, the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. You have now the desecration of the temple, and it's called man's deification, what God says is an absolute abomination. Um, So, uh, can't say for sure, but I think the circumstantial evidence is somewhat overwhelming, personally. That's what I think. You're free to disagree. Uh, I'm just taking an educated stab at this thing, all right? Um, somebody asked, well, what about cloning? What is the science behind cloning? If Jesus was resurrected at 33 years of age, wouldn't that mean that this clone has to be prepared years in advance? like 33 years for another exact duplicate of this adult male uh, to appear uh, out of this counterfeit resurrection. So I'm certainly not the authority on cloning, trust me, but I know a few people that are. And so the nature of cloning, guys, when I say a human clone would not have a human soul, here's the deal. As Christians, we hold life in the womb as sacred. Uh, We believe life begins at conception, And Psalm 139 is emphatic about that, that God knows us even while we are still unformed in our mother's womb. And so life begins at conception, meaning that human life inside that mother's womb has a human soul even before it's fully formed and looks has has a human body, okay? But what's the nature of conception? The nature of conception, I know this is like seventh grade biology, but it's been a long time for some of us, so... 
little review here, right? Conception happens when a sperm meets an, yes, life begins. There's life. Amen. Amen. Glad you feel that way too. Some of us do, okay? Now here's the deal. With a clone, life happens, but it doesn't happen that way. A sperm never meets an egg. You have an organism that is brought into being without conception, okay? It's Dolly the sheep, 1997. And since Dolly the sheep was cloned, various mammals and various organisms of all sizes and stripes have been cloned. Uh, most advanced civilizations outlaw, ban human cloning. Even secular scientists know, mm, gee, I don't know, there's something about this that just doesn't feel right. And it shouldn't feel right. Because intrinsically, we know that something separates human life from other life. Even lost people, and it's, it's the human soul, right? Now, here's the reason why I'm suggesting to you a clone would have a human body, but it wouldn't have a human soul. There's no conception. What you have in a clone is a somatic cell, usually taken off the skin of the host organism. And then you have an egg cell, and the DNA is taken out of that egg cell. And then only the DNA of the somatic cell is inserted into the egg. And so normally, at conception, you have equal amount of DNA from the mother and the father. We're, both, we're all half our mom and half our dad. You understand? But with a clone, you don't have half of this and half of this. You have all of this and none of this. And so the scientist takes the DNA out of the egg and takes the somatic cell, and that DNA puts it in the egg. So the only DNA now in that egg is that of the host organism. And that is how you get an exact duplicate, an exact replicate. By the way, again, this is science fiction. Uh, guys, you can check me out on this. Again, there's a lot of fake news out there. Be careful what you pass around, all right? But do you realize scientists even now are talking about resurrecting some extinct forms of life? This is where the theoretical science comes from for the movie series Jurassic Park. Yeah. You tracking with me? Yeah. I mean, theoretically, you have... Um, you know, in 1994, scientists and archaeologists from Montana State University found a Tyrannosaurus rex in Montana, and inside the long bone of that T-Rex, they found red blood cells that had never been fully fossilized. Kind of curious for an animal supposed to be dead for 65 million years, don't you think? I don't know, I'm just saying. The theoretical science says... We can use that cell. The DNA is still there, theoretically, for Jurassic Park. Now, that's probably a long ways from happening, but what's not a long ways from happening is woolly mammoths coming back to life. It's happening right now. Now, it's going to be a hybrid of an Asian elephant. They haven't quite figured out how to make a completely woolly mammoth. There's going to be a host, and it's going to be an Asian elephant, but they're going to bring an animal that's been dead for 10,000 years back to life. That, that's happening. That's real science. I was down at the Stowers Institute a couple of weeks ago talking uh, with a scientist that goes to our church. He's a believing scientist, and um, I was asking him about this. I, I asked him, now, is the technology scientifically, do we really have the science and the technology to clone a human being? The answer is yes. 
um, and, uh, and it hasn't been done to our knowledge. The closest that has been done is uh, there was a cluster of cells that was cloned, and they destroyed it before it could fully evolve, and that has happened. Uh, statistically, only one out of a hundred mammals that are cloned actually live and make it to adulthood. So it's very risky for a number of reasons, and that's why nobody really wants to uh, mess around with it yet. But you think about how fast technology is evolving, guys. My word. What's happened in the last 10 years? Now you multiply that by maybe the next 10 years. Who knows? Uh, would it take 33 years for this clone to be prepared? Not necessarily. Because what I found out was that a clone, part of the problem with cloning human beings, if anybody ever wants to try that, is the aging process is accelerated. So it doesn't take 33 years to get a 33-year-old adult, adult male. It would take years, but maybe not 33 years. Either way, if what I'm saying here is correct, and this really is how it comes together in the tribulation, and we'll know from heaven by this time the judgment seat of Christ will be over, and you know, we'll be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and maybe we'll care, maybe we won't, I don't know. But if what I'm saying is true, then what it does mean is this would be in the making for years. The preparation, and guys, again, I'm not a conspiracy guy, forget all that stuff, let's just deal with what we know. What we do know is that the wheels are in motion already by powerful people around the world in powerful places working feverishly to bring about a global community, the breakdown of national sovereignty uh, for sake of a global economy and global currencies. It's already in motion. Could this be part of what's in motion? I don't know for sure. I don't know. Okay, those were the two questions. Like I, I got intercepted on the way in. I promised I'd answer those. Who's got one now? Okay, anybody? Yes? Hang on just a moment. Martin's got a mic for those that are listening later online. We may have covered this, but identical twins, that was eliminated because there's, there is a soul in the twin? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Somebody here might have an identical twin. One might argue that they have a soul and their twin doesn't. <laughs> anybody? Denise has a twin. She definitely doesn't have a soul, she says. But see, that's the deal. Identical twins have more than breath, pneuma. They have zwi, life, because they both have a living soul. And that's what I think. I think, personally, we can eliminate the idea that maybe this man has a twin, maybe a body double. It's not unusual, guys, for dictators throughout history to have a body double. It's well known. Saddam Hussein had several body doubles that from a distance looked a lot like him. These guys are always paranoid, always looking out for the assassination attempt. And so some poor guy that looked enough like him had to put on what he wore every day, just in case. Um, but again, I, I just think in the age of modern technology, satellite television, uh, it's going to have to be something more than just somebody that looks a lot like him. Uh, in this case, I think it's got to be more than maybe a twin. Because what does it say? Again, John is trying to describe what he's seeing. It says the false prophet had power to give breath to the image. If it's a twin, the false prophet doesn't need power to give breath to his twin. The twin already has breath. But, he's, but, but John is according the false prophet 
with having done this. He's saying the false prophet has been given the ability to give breath to the image of the beast. And if it's really a ten, naturally, a twin naturally conceived, the false prophet wouldn't have had to do anything. Okay? But good question nonetheless, because honestly, your guess is as good as mine at this point. And I don't mind guessing if we have a little bit of knowledge to work with here. Okay? Who else? Yep. How about a hologram? Because Erdogan has already done that. And he, he appeared in front of a big old bunch of people. Yeah. So how about a hologram? Maybe. I mean, who am I to say it's not? I mean, honestly, we don't know. Uh, possibly, but again, man, he's going to deceive millions and masses. And, you know, the implication is you might deceive millions and masses from thousands of miles away, but it's really going to be difficult for a hologram to deceive thousands of people from just a few feet away. And, uh, and then again, I think the clue really, for me anyway, is back here Again, as you look a little deeper into what happens in verse 15, he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast. See, the implication is not merely that uh, the, uh, the implication is that he has breath or the appearance is that he has breath. A hologram appears to have breath. That's not what it says. What it says is the image is given breath. So I think the implication goes beyond a hologram who certainly would have the appearance of life and the appearance of having breath. Uh, what John says is whatever he's seeing is really given breath. It's the real deal. You know, the word icon in the Greek implies more than a hologram too. It implies an exact duplicate, replicate, not just the... the uh, you know, image in the sense of a hologram, but the real deal, literally, tangibly, physically. So, who's next? Yeah, in back. Martin, if you don't mind. Man, look at him run. <laughs> Martin, for a man your age. <laughs> Wait a minute, Martin's got to catch his breath. Hang on. Okay, you good? Okay. <laughs> I just wanted to work him out. Uh, yeah. Um, well, you know, is who is Re Revelations written to? Is it believers or is it for non-believers? Because of the way that it's written and it's kind of a mystic, almost uh, sure context. Yep. And if it is written to the believer, mm -hmm. why do you think God has given us so much detail about things that happen after we are raptured? Great question. Let's find out who it's written to. Now, I'm going to always show you. Look, one thing I want to teach you guys is how to study the Bible. I don't just want to teach you what I think because what I think in the end is just what I think. What I want to teach you more than anything is to figure out what God says and how God thinks. So, who is it written to? Let's answer that. Context is always key. Revelation chapter 1. Let's pick it up in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show who? You guys reading it? So who's it written to? The servants of Jesus Christ. So it's written to believers. It's not written to unbelievers. Now why then? And it's a great question, Mark. Why, if it's written to believers, uh, would it be so important that God shows us future things? I mean, some of which I personally don't think we'll be here personally to see. Now some people do, and I've told you recently why. I believe it's a pre-trib rapture. Somebody... Uh, this past week thought they heard me say that I've changed my mind and now it's a mid-trib rapture. 
Sometimes I talk so fast, I think sometimes maybe um, I talk too fast and people misunderstand. What I think I said was, I can understand biblically a mid-trib rapture. I understand biblically how people get there. That's what I said. I can understand biblically how people get to a post-trib rapture. There's a reason why Christians disagree on this. Uh, but while I tried to talk myself out of a pre-trib position, I talked myself back into it, okay? And so uh, I gave you five reasons why in a message early on in this series, why I'm convinced it's a pre-trib rapture. Here's the point. We won't even be on the earth to see this if that's true. Why would God give us this information? I'll tell you why. I'm convinced, Mark, because it's the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. That word apocalypse doesn't mean doom and gloom and ruin. What does it mean? Unveiling. God wants to unveil our eyes to what it's going to be like shortly before Jesus comes. Why? So that we will not be taken by surprise while the rest of the world is in darkness as children of the night. We are children of the light. We don't know the day or the hour. Jesus was emphatic that we cannot know the exact day or hour that he's coming, but he doesn't want us to be taken off guard. He doesn't want us to be taken by surprise. He wants us to be living with expectation. He wants us to be living with confidence. He wants us to be living with certainty in days of uncertainty, full of security. I think personally, he wants us to see the future to give us a sense of hope that it really is going to turn out okay when it seems like the world's going to hell in a handbasket. The world's not falling apart, it's just falling together. I personally think that's why he, he, he writes Revelation, guys, to encourage us so that we know that while times are dark and they're going to get darker and times are evil and they're going to get yet more evil, and the days of tribulation are on us, and we're not even yet in the tribulation. He wants us to have a sense of the gospel. It means good news. The good news is that paradise lost is going to be paradise regained, because when you get back to Revelation chapter 22, the Bible ends right where it began. Mankind is in a garden, and it's a place of beauty and bounty and prosperity and perfection and joy, and there's no more sorrow and there's no more pain, for the former things have been washed away. There's a new heaven and a new earth, and God has forever dealt with this problem of sin and the chaos and confusion therein, and I'm going to tell you something. There's going to be a kingdom that will be without end, and the very reason that God put Adam in a garden and told him to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth was to establish a kingdom and a race of beings known as the sons of God, all that bear the image of God. Adam, you see, forfeited that commission. It was canceled, but alas, Adam the one the Bible calls Jesus, he has come to undo the curse of the first, and God will fulfill in the last Adam what he did, would have fulfilled in the first Adam, and when Jesus Christ comes again, that kingdom is going to be established, and it's going to be without end. Amen. That's good news, isn't it? I think that's why God gives us revelation, Mark, because honestly, if we didn't have this revelation, if we didn't have this unveiling, I mean, honestly, this world is a helpless, hopeless place, isn't it? Who would want to stay here? Honestly, who would want to live here? I mean, the world is just absolutely depraved and wicked and evil, full of injustice and warfares and wickedness and murder and horrible. But it's not going to be this way forever. Yep. 
Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, so it would be the rapture of the church and then the tribulation. And during yeah. the tribulation is when people will start to receive the mark of the beast. Yes. So those who do not receive the mark of the beast, will they just be killed at that time? Yeah. Or? So that's the implication here again in Revelation you know, 13. And look at what it says in verse 14. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. And he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And so it was during the Roman Empire. Again, I'm convinced if you look at Daniel, and I've said you can't study Revelation without studying Daniel. You've got Daniel's ten toes in Daniel chapter 2, right? And Daniel sees this, this image, and he defines this image in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The head of gold is Babylon, and he sees four subsequent Gentile world powers. And you have the, the chest and arms of silver that came after the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians. And then you have that belly of brass, which of course was the Greeks and Alexander the Great. And then you had the legs of iron. Iron always associated historically with Rome, Rome and its iron legions. And then you have the ten toes at the very bottom of iron mixed with miry clay. So the implication is this ten-toed confederation, which we find out the ten toes on Daniel's image corresponds to the ten horns on the beast of Revelation 13, ten nations. A ten-nation confederation is the power base of the Antichrist. And what do we learn about Daniel's ten toes? It's iron mixed with clay. It has the appearance of the strength of the old Roman Empire, but it's mixed with clay. It's actually brittle. It begins to break up. It's weakened. And so uh, the, the, the implication here in some way is a revival of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, unlike all the other world empires before it, was never conquered. It simply broke up. In other words, there was never a conquering empire that overtook Rome to become the next world empire. Historians tell us what makes Rome unique is that it was never really conquered. It just fragmented. The implication being it's gone underneath the surface, lying dormant one day in some way to reappear, reemerge. And that's in some way what we're seeing here. And as it was in the first Roman empire where they would kill you if you did not worship the Roman Caesar, it will be in this Roman Empire where they will kill you if you do not worship this Roman Caesar, kind of a revived in some way, I'll use that term loosely, not literally revived, but a revived Roman Caesar, that's what you have here, over a revived Roman Empire. Now, what's it say? Not only uh, will you be killed if you don't worship the beast, let's face it, there could be millions of people who aren't participating. No, nah, not participating. Sorry, um, I, I'm worshiping Jesus. I'm going to Sunday school. You guys can do what you want to do. Not taking the mark, not for me, thank you. Well, so what happens? You can't buy, you can't sell, you can't trade, no gas, no groceries. You see, it's a way of starving people into submission. So that's the implication. Now, uh, the, the implication in Revelation 7 is that there's going to be revival in the tribulation such as never been seen in the history of the world. begins with 144,000 Jews that will miraculously receive their Messiah. 
They're going to realize Jesus is the king. He's the one, the one that we crucified 2,000 years ago. And they're going to come to him by faith miraculously, like Paul on the road to Damascus. They're going to go forth preaching the gospel to all nations, Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said. And then the end will come. And it tells us in Revelation 7, there's going to be revival. Those that will come out of the tribulation to receive true salvation, rejecting the Antichrist and his kingdom. Revelation 7 says, John sees of every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Worldwide revival by the millions. Now, here's the deal. Millions will be martyred for their faith in Jesus. They will. But there will be many who are alive at the second coming who endure. And that's what Jesus meant in Matthew 24 when he said, but they that endure till the end will be saved. Not that they're, you know, got to endure and hang on to be saved spiritually. He was just saying, if you endure the persecution of the tribulation, you're still alive at the second coming, uh, you're going to endure till the end. And that's when Jesus separates in what Jesus called in Matthew 25, the judgment of the sheep and the goats. And, uh, those who come out of the tribulation, having received salvation, they rejected the mark of the beast, they did not follow the beast, they go into then the millennial kingdom, where Jesus establishes that kingdom then for a thousand years. Going to do a whole message here in a few weeks just on the millennial kingdom. It will be their seed then that repopulates the earth and replenishes the earth for a thousand years. Did I answer your question? Short questions, no short answers, I'm sorry. Okay. I guess mine was piggybacking on hers, and you kind of answered most of it, because I was going to ask, during the seven tribulation, we have the two prophets, and so ones who have already accepted the beast mark, um, how will they elude that or not? I mean, is it in the first uh, half of the three, first three and a half years that um, they'll see the light, per se, or um, it, will it be in the last half of the three and a half years, and will they try to... Uh, uh, like physically extract the, the piece that has been put in them? Or no, do we have uh, any the implication, ideas? once they take the mark, it's sealed. In the same way that you've been sealed, as I said this morning, uh, you can't be unsealed. Your work can't undo God's work. Sealed. Until when? Ephesians 4.30, until the day of redemption, until you stand in heaven and that seal is broken and the treasure therein uh, and so this, in the same way, what, what happens in 2 Thessalonians 2, it tells us um, that, go ahead and turn there, to key passage, a key prophecy. 2 Thessalonians 2. Okay? Guys, this is why, again, I'll just throw this out there. I don't have a lot of time to elaborate here. There's something called preterism. You ever hear of preterism? Preterist theologians believe that revelation is all history, none of it's prophecy. Preterist theologians believe that John was writing merely about the events of the first century. He was writing in code for the sake of not being persecuted more by the Romans. So preterist theologians believe most of revelation was fulfilled in 70 AD, for example, when Jerusalem was burned and the temple destroyed, okay? Okay. 
The problem of many problems with Proter's theology is there are too many prophecies, too many passages that are still unfulfilled, that have not been fulfilled anywhere in history, was not fulfilled in 70 AD in any capacity. If it's all history, there's a whole lot of passages that God can never fulfill, one of which is right here in 2 Thessalonians 2. When was it in 70 AD for the Proter's theologian that this guy called the man of sin, the son of perdition, went into the temple, proclaimed himself to be God, sat on the throne of God, and was worshipped as God. Didn't happen. So if there's no tribulation and revelation is all history, when's that going to happen? It can't happen. And so 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us that there's going to be a strong delusion that is sent. Okay? Um, I'm getting there eventually, I promise you. Okay, it tells us, let's go down here to, oh, let's say verse 9. The lawless one, in according with the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, that's the Antichrist, with all unrighteousness and deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all might be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And so what we learn here is that if you knew the truth and you had the gospel ahead of time, but you willingly, with your eyes wide open, rejected the gospel, guess what? If you're in the tribulation, you cannot be saved. You won't be saved. You will be sent strong delusion. God is going to send you a lie, and you will follow the Antichrist. Because you're going to believe the delusion, the lie, whatever's propagated. And we talked about, again, what I think the lie is a few weeks back, actually maybe six weeks ago, maybe, I don't know, a month ago in the well. We talked about it. There's going to be a lie. I think we can connect some dots and fill in some blanks. And honestly, I, I think that we can come to some pretty strong conclusions about this delusion. The implication, though, is that there's going to be revival worldwide and millions are going to come to Christ. But whoever had the truth ahead of time, you won't be able to. You will take the mark. So the implication is this revival won't happen in the Western Hemisphere. It's going to happen in places like Asia, throughout the Middle East, and India, and China, where the name of Jesus hasn't been preached. You know what? In the West, we're inoculated with the gospel. You understand that? And so um, it's not like, well, I changed my mind. I'm not going to take the mark. No, you'll take the mark, and you'll take it willingly. You'll think it's a great idea, this utopian global community, finally, the dream of the social reformers, and the nations no longer compete for resources, and we can all be one big happy family, finally, the breakdown of national sovereignty, global currencies, and it's going to make a lot of sense in the name of security and safety. I mean, who wouldn't want this technology in their children? They can never be lost. They can never be abducted. My medical ID and everything, sure, of course, give it thing to me, right? Sure. Now, the implication is also in Revelation 7 that millions from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation are going to hear the gospel. They're going to receive the truth, and they'll be considered traitors, enemies of the state, as early Christians were of the Roman state. Answer your question. So, Who else? Somebody? Right over here, Phil. Yeah. Can I, can I just chime in real quick? Of course. Would, would that be 
Also, a good reference, Romans 1, that God gives them over to the reprobate mind. I Could think you, that's a great cross-reference, Josiah. Okay. So, so that, that would be something that Absolutely. You, would, you would use to affirm? Sure. There's truth. a place three times in Romans chapter 1, what's it say? God gave them over. God gave them up. Guys, we live in the age of grace. Theologians call the church age the age of grace. But even in the church age... There is a point, and nobody knows when it is or where it is, but there is a point when a human being over and over and over again says no to God, rejects the invitation of salvation. There is a point where God says, okay, have it your way. Now imagine this, the church age is over. The tribulation is no longer the church age. The age of grace is over. Guess what the tribulation is? It's the age of vengeance. Revelation 19, guess what? Jesus comes back, and guess what we're going to see next week on Sunday morning? He's coming back with a sharp sword that with it he shall strike the nations, and he treads out the winepress and the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. Now, this is the Jesus the world doesn't want. The Jesus the world wants is the tame Jesus, the happy Jesus. That's the world that Jesus wants. I'm going to tell you, Jesus is not who the world thinks he is. Yes, Jesus suffered on the cross the first time, but he ain't suffering today. He'll never suffer again. He suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. And he is a reigning monarch of might and majesty. And there's going to come a day where the age of grace is over, and he's coming back to bring vengeance on the sin and rebellion and insurrection and arrogance of men. Amen. Here we go. Pastor Phil, um, if not, not everybody will be answered to his question when you said that you stated that. Uh, didn't want us to be surprised or want people to be surprised. Not everybody that's saved is going to be following Christ. Right. So what happens? So, uh, you know, there's several theories on the rapture. One is called a partial rapture theory, which says only those Christians living for Jesus, walking with Jesus, expecting Jesus' return, they're the only ones that are going to get raptured. And the Christians that aren't living for Jesus, you know, all those carnal Christians, which is, you know, everybody except for, you know, me, probably. I mean, it's <laughs> kind of how this theory goes. I mean, I think anyway. It's kind of like, well, who is and who isn't, right? So this theory says some get left behind. Now, here's the deal, guys. I don't believe for a moment the bridegroom leaves part of his bride behind. What makes any of us righteous in the eyes of God? Is it our works? Uh-uh. We are declared righteous by God, not because of our work, but by whose work? Christ's work. That's the only thing that makes any of us righteous in the eyes of God. So here's the deal, guys. Whether, you know, you are backslidden, to use that term, that's the term I grew up with, you know, backslidden. You don't use that a lot anymore, backsliders. Uh, even if you're a backslidden Christian, if the rapture happens, you're going with them. Now, guess what happens? You're going to go to the judgment seat of Christ right away. Guess what the Apostle Paul said? The terror of the Lord 
The judgment seat of Christ is going to be a terrifying experience for some of us. I mean, we, we, we sing all these happy songs, right? And I can only imagine, <laughs> will I dance for you, Jesus, or in all of you be still? And uh, I'm just going to tell you, for some of us, we're not going to do any dancing. Not initially. We will. We're going to. No, initially, we're going to be stricken with terror. You're going to do the same thing everybody ever did when they got in the presence of God. Bam. On your face. Woe is me, I am undone, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king of glory. You know, Isaiah thought, I'm done. I'm toast. Here's the reality. The judgment seat of Christ, listen, if you're not living for Jesus, you're living in sin, yeah, you're still forgiven, and because of that, you're still going to heaven. But guess what 1 Corinthians 3 says? Some will suffer loss. Loss of what? Not loss of heaven, loss of reward. You see, we will all reign with Christ. Revelation 5.10, he's made us to be both priests and kings, and we will reign on the earth. But we will not all reign equally with Christ. You see, at the judgment seat of Christ, he's going to judge your works according to whether they're gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. And if you gave your life for the trinkets and the temporal treats of this life that is fleeting and not forever, it's going to be like wood, hand stubble. It'll go through the fire. It's gone. On the other hand, if you're living your life for the things that matter, that really last forever, the Word of God, the souls of men, what you do with your life will go through the fire. And like the gold and silver and precious stones, what happens when gold is passed through the fire, when precious stones are passed through the fire? The fire doesn't destroy it. The fire does what? refines it. It makes it better. And so the implication, Jimmy, is not, man, I need to live for Jesus or the rapture might happen and I'll get left behind. No, I won't. You know, the real motivation, live for Jesus because one day I'm going to stand at the Bema seat of Christ. That's the judgment seat of Christ as they stood at the end of a race in the ancient days and the competitors would gather at the Bema seat and the one that sat on the Bema seat would crown them according to how they'd run the race. The implication is that life is a race and how you run based on the right race and the right direction and the right way is how you're going to end up with heavenly eternal reward that'll last forever. That's enough motivation to me to live for Jesus. Because I'm going in the rapture, but I got to get ready for the judgment seat of Christ. All right, we got two minutes. No, we got one minute and 50 seconds. Okay. Real quick question. Okay, Dave. Um, you said that the mark of the beast will happen after the rapture. Yes. Therefore, all of the Christians that are here yes. don't ever have to worry about it. Correct. That's my belief. And look, and if you're a mid-trib guy, fine. Post-trib guy. Look, if you're really a born-again believer in Jesus, as I said this morning, God has already done what? He's already sealed you. You're not going to take Satan's mark if you've already received God's mark. Not, a, not, not, not an issue. It's a non-negotiable. And so what happens, uh, I think, coming back to your question really quickly, I think the mark happens at the three-and-a-half-year point, the midway point of the tribulation. And that's when he begins to be worshipped as God. 
that's where I think the implication in Revelation 13 is where this mark emerges for all of humanity. Choose a side, or you in or you out. Swear your allegiance now to the beast. And that's where the uh, ultimatum will be made at the three-and-a-half-year point. I don't think that's early in the tribulation. I think that's about the midway point in the tribulation. we got time for two more. All right, Josiah, real quick. Got to run. 30 seconds. Uh, yes, you said that people, carnal Christians... It'll be like rubble or stubble, yeah. and it'll be, it's out. Does that, but they'll still le live eternally with Absolutely, Christ, sure. But less reward, they won't, what? Street sweepers. Street sweepers? Okay. <laughs> I don't know, a street sweeper in heaven can't be all bad, right? Yeah, it's still going to be I just heaven. want you to break down the different crowns and what that would look like. Okay, that's a great question. There are five crowns for the faithful Christian, and we honestly don't have time to do much with it tonight, but there's a soul winner's crown, there's the martyr's crown, there is the shepherd's crown, and so there's various crowns that you can receive at the Bema seat, at the ceremony, the awards ceremony, and that's what it is, all right? So here's the deal. Some of us are going to receive a lot of crowns. Some of us are just going to receive a few crowns. Now, here's the deal. Without a sin nature, and none of us will have a sin nature, that means none of us will have a competitive, selfish nature, meaning I'm not going to be going, well, Danny, you got more crowns than me, man. That ain't fair. <laughs> man, I did better than you. I, I mean, it's not even going to enter our minds. Uh, but that is the implication. See, we will all reign as kings and presumably queens with him. That's what the crowns are for. We're all going to be a part of his administration as we rule over the nations, the bridegroom and the bride. But we're not going to have equal authority, okay? That's the judgment seat of Christ. One more. Josiah, one more. One more. Okay, um, you talked this morning about God puts his mark on us upon salvation, and in the tribulation, people will take on the mark of the beast. Okay, to digress, the, micro, the, the possibility of that mark is the microchip. Okay, to digress, right now that microchip is available, and there are countries or corporations and countries that are forcing their employees to microchip. Yeah. And they're even talking about having our nation's military being forced to microchip themselves. Um, in that, those people who take on that microchip now before the tribulation, are they marked? No. No. So the microchip is not the mark of the beast. It's simply the technology that will lead to whatever we call the mark of the beast. So, look, you know, this thing I talked about this morning, the Verichip, this company, honestly, they're not doing very good. You know why? Because Americans, there's been enough teaching on this. It's like, man, I ain't taking that thing. Get that thing away from me. It's a pretty tough business to be in, right? Here's the point of all that, though. This is the technology that will be used. So theoretically, somebody takes a microchip for whatever reason. Um, they're not taking the mark of the beast. They're simply taking the technology that will be associated with the mark of the beast. So if you've chipped your dog, it's okay. It's okay. Your cat, they're in good hands. No worries, Okay. Hey, guys, love you much. Awesome stuff. I love spending time with you in the Word of God. I really do. Hey, let's pray together, okay? Jesus, I pray blessing upon blessing over every person in this place tonight. Help us, I pray, to leave this place encouraged by the unveiling of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that we can see these prophecies in our day, even now, being revealed. 
that for so many centuries were concealed, nobody could have imagined for generation after generation the things that we can now understand and see. God, help us, I pray, to whom much is given, much is required. Help us to be ready when you come. In Jesus' name, amen. Have an awesome week, guys. God bless you.